Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. I think the interesting thing with, with some of the discussion about the proposal for public hearings is, is it's not that you would automatically get a public hearing at the whim of someone's allegation. It would have to reach a certain threshold and there would be some sort of structure in place to assess whether or not those public hearings were in the public interest. So, you know, I know there is genuine fear about something like this being weaponised and I think that's on both sides of the parliament. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and today I'm with... Paul Carp, Sarah Martin. And Daniel Hurst. And we are utterly professional, and today we are doing an Ask Us Anything episode, which of course is our favourite eps of the pod. So if uh, you haven't heard one of these episodes previously, uh, the format will become very obvious to you, I think. Basically, people send us questions and we do our very, very best to answer them. And uh, given the year in politics, uh, we've got a fair spread here. So, Sarah, you're going to uh, take the first one. Okay. A question from George Hanna. Thank you, George. Um, apart from Dutton, Josh, Hunt, where is the rest of the Cabinet? We hear nothing from Maurice Payne. Is Morrison Joint going to do another Just Me election run? Mm, good question. Um, I think the short answer is no, um, because he can't. Um, you know, I think the 2019 election campaign, uh, Scott Morrison was still a new entity. You know, there was sort of the, the daggy dad shtick, the, you know, donning a cap and, um, you know, performing stunts all over the country. And it was novel. It was new. His approval ratings were pretty good. Um, in the past three years, we've seen a very um, sort of strong and steady decline in his personal approval ratings. Um, and so, so of course, this time it's going to be very different because it's not um, it's not about Scott Morrison versus Bill Shorten, and I guess that's the other part of that equation. You know, Morrison at the last election made it very clear: you vote for um, the Liberal Party, you get me; you vote for Labor, you get Bill Shorten. Like insert spooky music. This time around, it's a very different equation, and, and so I think he will broaden it to being more about a, a party contest. And you know, you've got to remember that in each electorate, in each contest, it's party versus party, candidate versus candidate and leader versus leader. And um, the government will try and broaden that um, and perhaps focus more on the party and, and on the individual candidates. And I think we'll get a lot more sort of micro um, messaging um, depending on which electorate they're in as well. Mm, mm, it is, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about this as not so much um, the sort of, uh, you know, president and alternative president, but a bunch of 
individual seats contest because mm. that's kind of how it feels to me as well going into it. Anyone else got thoughts before we move on about uh, Presidente Morrison versus not? I think he still makes it a comparison between himself and Albanese, but the the problem then is how to drag Albanese down. He then uses the lines about the party on, you know, he's a Labor man and you know what Labor will do, you mm. know, tax mm. and more scary music. Mm. So it, it is still a, a comparison that he invites, but it's not as, as strong point as it was against Short. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, also interesting, I was chatting to a Labor MP the other day who said, you know, one thing that they are sort of bracing for and which they haven't had yet is the is the the, um, you know, is when the coalition turned the guns on Albanese. We haven't had that sort of um, attack on his character yet. And I yes. think that will come in the campaign. Mm. Um, and, you know, we know that Morrison will do and say anything to get re-elected. And so I expect that we will hear a lot more about Albanese as the campaign goes on. Mm. Yeah, very interesting thought. Okay, Daniel, uh, you're up. Question from David. Why on earth would Australia even contemplate going to war with China with the US? And why would we even say that? Well, that's about Peter <laughs> Dutton. How long have you subtle, got, David? Sorry. Our very subtle defence minister. Um, look, just a quick context, not to, not to sort of excuse anything, but this was a few days after Paul Keating had told the National Press Club, you know, we have no vital interest in Taiwan you know, basically, it's not our problem. And a couple of days after that, Peter Dutton popped up in the Australian newspaper and said it would be inconceivable that if China invaded Taiwan and the US came to its aid, that we wouldn't step in and also assist. I mean, it's one thing for a you know defence analyst to say this. It's another thing for the defence minister of the country to say it. Like, it's probably, if you look at Australia's military history, it probably is it would be remarkable if the US went into that sort of action and we decided not to join in our top security ally. Like, this yeah. is this is what Australia does. We join with the US in these sorts of conflicts. So um, put that to aside for a second. Because he's the defence minister of the country, it looked a bit like a pre-commitment and way out ahead of the US as well. Mm. Um, so that, that was extraordinary. Um, and Dutton is certainly is... Uh, one of those members of the government who really is leaning into the idea of a national security election, government strong, Labor weak, you know, very simple binary, which is which oversimplifies things. But the rest of Dutton's warnings about, you know, China really do reflect um, the Australian government's view. Like it's really hardened in the last few years, the Australian government's view of China's intentions and its actions in the region, in the South China Sea, in Hong Kong, uh, increase in military pressure against Taiwan. But nobody else in government has gone far enough to predict that we would come and join yeah. a war. Yeah. And that's before we even get into the fact that the AUKUS arrangement for nuclear-powered submarines wouldn't be operational until the 2040s. Yes, yeah, a bit of a problem. <laughs> we'll join in the 2040s, just hold exactly. off. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the US is the main power here. Mm. And the other thing is, you know, defence analysts, there's a bunch who have said, you know, it actually serves Beijing's um, goals to be sort of presenting war as inevitable because mm. then if you're if you're in Taiwan, you're the people of Taiwan, you would be more inclined to go along with a political settlement on Beijing's terms yeah. to, mm. to integrate with with. Um, with, with um, you know, rule by Beijing uh, on their terms. So, like, this inevitability of conflict, you know, there's a bunch of people who don't take a soft view about what China's doing in the region but actually say, look, let's not further that 
goal yes. of, of let's not be complacent, but also let's be a bit more um, strategic about how we support the people of Taiwan, the democracy of 24 million people, and not just be preoccupied entirely with this war dynamic when there's a bunch of things we could be doing to support them in trade and in other international forums um, before you get to the point of an actual conflict. Yeah, and I think I, I think you, you sort of got to the why and the answer that it's sort of setting up this national security contest domestically. I mean, I think that is the why. Have either of you got thoughts about, you know, the domestic security election, Sarah? Um, not really. I mean, well, I haven't really turned my mind to it that much other than it's sort of, a, you know, it goes without saying that if the coalition can fight an election on national security, they certainly will. Mm. I thought it was interesting. There was a story in the ABC yesterday about how some of this um, China rhetoric may be going down very badly in um, some of the Chinese communities in, in yeah. Western Sydney and um, obviously in Chisholm and um, other areas where there are high Chinese populations. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And again, going back to the point about, you know, my micro-messaging and uh, sort of narrow casting to particular groups. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> Andrew Hastie and Peter Dutton on the front page of the Daily Telegraph um, beating the drums about China, how many people is that putting off in the Chinese diaspora um, and is that a wise move? Mm. The, one of the reasons Paul Keating was so uh, agitated recently was because there actually is quite strong bipartisanship when it comes to how to handle the rise of China. So, you know, interestingly... There isn't a lot of difference. There might be differences in nuance or how you express it. Certainly, you know, how you express it in a way that doesn't spill over into racism against mm. the Chinese Australian community. But, you know, a couple of things can be true at once. Like there, there is a view, I think, that Dutton takes um, and some in government takes that, you know, being tough on China is a net positive, but mm. there definitely would be an impact in some seats. But it's a bit dangerous going into an election trying to escalate differences between the parties when actually there is mm. fairly sort of common unity on this and there there is we know that there is spillover effect when it comes to how Chinese Australians are treated and the idea that, you know, suspected of divided loyalties and all those sorts of things. So it, it is risky. And yeah. you sort of only hear part of the story from the China hawks, you know, like the drum beating doesn't kind of lead to the the, the thought process of, well, what would war with China look like? And yes. I don't think anyone actually thinks that that could in any way be a very good idea no. for Australia, despite the sort of amping up the rhetoric for political reasons beforehand. And it is interesting too, uh, just to sort of complete our thought about Peter Dutton, and being forward-leaning and sort of going back to the first question was the absent Maurice Payne uh, <laughs> and would be Scott Morrison going to be a solo act? I think it's true to say that Peter Dutton's fanning his tail feather for future events uh, in terms of the leadership of the Liberal Party and also in terms of the China rhetoric, certainly from some of his colleagues, I don't get the impression that they're overly thrilled by the sort of the you know dialing it up to 11 like obviously as sarah said a minute ago a national security campaign the coalition always clap its hands and say bring it baby because then you know the campaign pivots around their preferred issues but you know basically kind of out sort of semi-shirt fronting china and that's a different that's a different kettle of fish with actual real world implications. Anyway, very interesting. Thank you to David for that question. Now, Paul, you're up from Patrick van der Werf. Sorry, Patrick. It's either Werf or Werf. I don't know. Thank you, Patrick, for your question. Will corruption be an issue at the next federal election? Will voters care? 
And uh, related, a related question from Terry Frost, uh, should an ICAC be retrospective? So let's start with corruption first. Yes, I, I do think it will be an election issue, uh, particularly for independents that are contesting liberal heartland in inner city Sydney and Melbourne. It's core business, um, you know, anti-corruption, climate change policy and treatment of women are their, their main three issues. But I think it has an appeal outside th- those constituencies as well, including in the suburbs and regions. I mean, Jackie Lambie was very cross at the government in the last fortnight and said they're doing very badly in Tasmania. Um, and she listed, you know, secrecy and not doing enough on a corruption commission as some of the reasons that they're not doing particularly well. I don't think it's a first order issue um, for, for lots of people, but, you know, uh, politicians and political parties are generally unpopular. Um, Often disengaged voters take the view of, you know, a pox on both their houses. They think they, you know, they hate everyone in Canberra. It doesn't matter which party. But with Labor offering an anti-corruption commission with teeth and the government making quite technical arguments about, you know, oh, oh, we we couldn't get it through without Labor support that make them seem quite weak or that they haven't made it a priority in the last three years, I do think it is a slight advantage to Labor to be able to say um, that they would do that. In terms of retrospectivity, I think it should be retrospective. I mean, it might be too late to deter the alleged corrupt conduct that it would be investigating, but there's no problem with having it be retrospective. It's not like creating a new criminal offence and criminalising conduct that previously wasn't criminal. Mm. It's Mm. creating a body that can look into conduct uh, that was allegedly not in the public interest and has never been in the public interest and the decision maker at the time should have known that it wasn't um, and just using a new body to investigate what happened in the past. And if you think that is, uh, you know, controversial or or harms the rule of law, every Royal Commission is retrospective. The government's bona fides in calling two Royal Commissions into their political opponents on home insulation and the Trade Union Royal Commission, which investigated, you know, Julia Gillard's home renovations from 20 years ago, that is is extremely retrospective. But, well, Paul's Paul's reacting because I had a slight... Uh, uh, when uh, I didn't expect Paul to say uh, that it should be retrospective. I had a slight rule of law moment there myself thinking, uh, really? Um, but it's an interesting it's an interesting thought, though, and you have made a compelling case why it's not, you know, sort of retrospectively criminalising something that wasn't. What about statute of limitations, though, broadly? I'm not talking about specifically. Like, what about the fairness question? Like, if if this ICAC with teeth started interrogating, you know, conduct in 1975, would that be reasonable? It, it, if, if standards... Governor General. <laughs> I wasn't being specific anyway. It's all right. Sorry, Is John. the Governor General within no, no, no. scope well, of no, the... Well, no, no, I'm just okay. saying, like, pick no. a date. I did, yeah. Like, 1975 uh, just yeah. what bubbled in my head, and I don't think that was corruption. I think that was something November else entirely. Onwards. But, like, where, where do we think the fairness or, or the reasonable... Not fairness, it's reasonableness. Where would you define that? As long as, as, long as the standard 
that the politician is alleged to have breached existed at the time, you mm. know, ministerial standards or whatever. Mm. I, I don't have a problem Bring it, with baby. it. And, mm. you know, maybe they can start at the at the year that they're formed and, and, and work their way backwards, making a judgment case by case about whether it's still worth fighting that fight and investigating that thing. You probably wouldn't start at 1975. Well, you might. Um, <laughs> but still, no, no, it's, it's really interesting. Do, other, do you guys have thoughts? I think the fairness thing is just like, correct me if I'm wrong because you've both covered this more closely than me, isn't the model that's been proposed by the government treats, you know, an AFP officer differently from how it yes. treats a politician? Yeah, that's yes. correct. Why should an AFP yeah. officer be subject to public hearings but not the politicians who are elected to high office and, are, and, and you know, we place a great deal of trust in? I mean, I think that's the fairness argument that it should be... Uh, yeah, ventilate more equal treatment. Absolutely. Why are the politicians immune from that? Yeah, yeah, well, that's, of course. That's unfair. No, no, of course. It's like I know fun. I've reframed it from no. the sort of retrospective thing, but no, I agree no, with no. Paul that no, if, no, no. No, if, it, if the standards that they're being examined against are the ones that were in place at the time, like the Ministerial Code of Conduct, fine. Yeah. It's about when you send people to jail uh, on retrospective laws. Yeah. So that's a problem no, 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 that's right. Um, and, and just one more thought on just on your point, Daniel. Um, I watched Malcolm Turnbull at a, a accountability roundtable through this week and he actually, just on that public hearings point, made quite interesting arguments about what can go wrong in secret hearings based on his own experience in the Costigan Royal Commission representing Kerry Packer. He made the point that if, if all of these hearings are, you know, basically sort of secret squirrel, if it's all off stage and off camera, a body... Uh, can go down a path because their propositions are not being tested, they're not mm. being debated. Um, now, I mean, look, I don't know whether or not, um, you know, that, that argument flies in respect of Costigan because that's, you know, that's the early 1980s, I don't remember it, but it's but it's an interesting point to think about, well, you know, if there's no way of testing the propositions, if there's not an actual debate about the merits of what's happening in the Anti-Corruption Commission, then you can end up in all sorts of weird cul-de-sacs, cabals. and yeah. on both sides. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think the interesting thing with, with some of the discussion about the proposal for public hearings is, is it's not that you would automatically get a public hearing at the whim of someone's allegation. It would, it would have to reach a certain threshold and there would be some sort of structure in place to assess whether or not those public hearings were in the public interest. So, yeah. um, you know, I know there is genuine fear about something like this being weaponised um, and I think that's on, on both sides of the parliament. But, you know, the other interesting thing in Helen Haynes's bill, um, there's actually an exoneration clause. So if, if someone is subject to a hearing and they are found to be exonerated, then there will be a, a statement of exoneration mm. presented mm. to clear that person. So um, this suggestion that just because you were referred and go through that public hearing process that you are somehow, um, you know, fatally uh, tainted, um, I don't think that stacks up when you look at the different models across the country and the models that have been proposed. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, Sarah, we're back to you. So from uh, Kylie Edmondson, would a hung parliament with progressive independence on the crossbench create more discussion and debate on legislation and lead to a healthier democracy? And a related question from Simone, would these independents do a deal with Scott Morrison? Both very interesting questions and particularly given um, I think there's a lot of people who feel like we are in a potential hung parliament territory at, at this election. So I guess firstly, 
Would it create more yeah. um, debate about legislation and so on? Yes, absolutely. I think it would. We've you know, obviously seen um, that in the past, but whether it would be healthy for democracy, I don't know. I think it probably depends on it depends on the numbers. But you know, we've had um, few hung parliaments at a federal level. Uh, obviously, the last one uh, we know was uh, not a particularly stable hung parliament when Julia Gillard formed an alliance with um, three independents. Um, I think that. You would definitely have more debate. You potentially, in the formation of a um, of some sort of coalition, you might get concessions on certain things. Um, but of course, you've got to remember that in the forming of a minority government, those uh, crossbench MPs would only—it's only about confidence and supply. And then every piece of legislation um, you are going to have to, uh, you know, negotiate. So, um, in a way, it's kind of what we've seen this year. You're probably going to be in herding cat territories. So you make concessions on the left, and you'll lose people on the right. Like this is. Um, um, you know, potentially what we um, would see again. Um, in terms of whether the independents would deal, do a deal with Morrison, again, it would, it would depend on, uh, you know, which seats those independents hailed from. Um, but I think there is a, a prospect that some of those independents uh, who would be from traditional liberal voting seats would find it very difficult to support a Labor government. But at the same time, they have problems with Morrison. So um, would they be prepared to support a Morrison government if they secured particular concessions on Integrity Commission and or climate? Would that be something that deals them in? Um, you know, we know, for example, with uh, Tony Windsor, once he backed Julia Gillard, he was out before the, the next election. So some of those independents who do represent um, liberal-leaning seats would have to consider whether or not they're in it for the long haul, whether they um, might face a backlash at the, at the following election if they did support a Labor government. Um, it's a, it's, it would be a fascinating mm. thing to, to see happen. Um, like Rebecca Sharkey, for example... I, I, you know, on social policy, most definitely she is always um, far more aligned with Labor, um, but she comes from a, a fairly um, strong liberal-leaning seat in the Adelaide Hills. So if she was to back a Labor government, I don't think there'd be any way she'd be re-elected mm. at the, the following yeah, election. Well, so it's a very complicated set of negotiations. Yeah, that's the calculation. Paul, you're busting to get in there. Oh, just on whether it's good for democracy, I think it depends on whether the crossbench MPs continue to deal with um, legislation on principle or whether or not it just is is horse trading. Mm. And you, you see in the Senate where, you know, sometimes bills are voted up and down because parties have longstanding principles uh, about whether it's the right thing to do. And sometimes you see bills voted up or down because, uh, you know, parties get grants in their, in their, in their seats or for their constituencies or allowed to announce government grants, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a good distinction. That uh, whether whether it's sort of principal or transactional, what the dynamic is, yeah. And some of the transactions can have all the all best intentions in the world, like Wilkie trying to you know extract a concession from Labor about cracking down on pokies in the in the Gillard minority government. Mm. So that I mean, mm. there can be some some well intentioned things, but it, it it depends what basis they're voting yeah, legislation yeah, it's a good through. Point. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, look, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I think this is a handful of seats proposition. I don't think we're sort of going to have the parliament stormed by independence. But as Sarah mentioned, it's like it's the dynamics. It's both sides, strategists on both sides. Think that there's a very high probability of a hung parliament, and then 
obviously you have the dynamic of who emerges uh, from that, who can command confidence and supply. Who's better suited to those negotiations, Morrison? Well, well that's another thought, and it's sort of what you know, sort of picking up on Sarah's kind of analysis. You know, what can Morrison give them on climate and an integrity commission? On climate, it'll be very difficult with the nationals, exactly. obviously, because yep. like those independents are going to want a higher twenty thirty target. So, mm. what do you do there? And then there's been a you know complete rolling mall in the cabinet about the integrity commission as well. So, mm. what, what what do you do there? So anyway, fascinating, completely fascinating. And also, like you know, Azali Stegall, a um, Allegra Spender, they're, they're they're kind of moderate liberals, so yeah. um, that would be a more natural fit for them. But you're right, then you yeah, it'll be a it'll be a hoot. Yeah, it will be a hoot. Yeah, but um, but fundamentally, I agree with you. I think the the idea of um, you know, the, Morrison would have to spurn them quite openly, I think, uh, to give them political cover to negotiate anything with Anthony Albanese given their constituencies. But anyway, watch this space. Mm. Stranger things have happened. We might all be wrong. Daniel, back to you, love. Uh, From Amanda Foy, uh, when is an antiviral medicine going to be factored into Australia's COVID plan? And a sort of related question, and this is a question the pod for mine just because I need a laugh. This is from Ben Aveling. Aveling. Omicron or Omicron? I'm going to avoid taking a position by saying the first first one. (laughs) I'm not going to say it. The the, the variant starting with O. Um, Look, I don't claim claim to be an expert on antivirals, but the government's always suggested that this is a supplement. In addition to the vaccines, the vaccination program is the main sort of safeguard, and then the antivirals are kind of like protective. They're used for people who have, you know, become quite unwell. So we are actually already using some in Australia, Um, you know, Remdesivir uh, is used in ICUs in Australia. There's been some announcements over the last couple of months about new ones, securing Roche, for example, and Pfizer's. But these are also subject to regulatory approval and clinical trials. Um, Last week, Greg Hunt announced some more funding to accelerate research into antiviral candidates. Um, But these are sort of treatment things. So, I mean, it's it's part of the equation, but vaccination's really been at the forefront Mm. of, of the strategy and it continues to be, I think, Going into next year, there'll be more emphasis on antivirals, but it's not doesn't replace vaccination. No, no, absolutely. And and anyone got a preference on Omicron or Omicron? Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know. I've got no idea. I've been saying Omicron. I think for a while I was saying Omnicron, like incorrectly. <laughs> yes, I kept typing it like that. I've <laughs> tried not to say it. And Paul made a dad joke about Emmanuel Macron, which we won't necessarily revisit. Anyway, he's looking. He's looking offended. But Go on, Paul. Anyway, let, let's let's roll. Let's roll. We are with Paul revisiting my unmask the troll uh, who who was who was behind it originally. <laughs> it was a terrible joke, uh, Paul from Pablo Langley. Okay, oh, speaking of trolls, well done. Uh, are journalists worried about the anti-troll laws? Uh, and are there concerns over publishing comments from anonymous whistleblowers? And sort of related from Ellie Belly, did forcing Facebook to pay for content uh, help or hinder? I've been wondering how that's been playing out on the ground. If you've missed this latter point, Facebook paying for content, Ellie is talking about the news media bargaining code that was uh, struck. Was that was that this year? 
God knows. What is time? I don't know exactly what is time. I think it was this year. Anyway, Paul, take it away. What are your thoughts on Pablo's question? Uh, well, on whistleblowers, I would say that they should get in touch with media <laughs> organisations like Guardian Australia through the secure drop facility on our website. Well done. Or using snail mail uh, to Parliament uh, would, rather than to, to blow the whistle through comments on, on social yeah, media. No, no, we, we're laughing, but we're not actually laughing. That's exactly, that is that is ideal advice. The, yep. I mean, and I think what the question is getting at is that there are contexts uh, where people need or want anonymity in order to be safe, you know, public servants that don't want to be sacked for the things that they say on on social media. And there are some protections in the bill for that, in that, you know, the, the social media companies don't have to do anything with the complaint unless they think it is a genuine defamation claim. Um, the, the person who have made the comment that's allegedly defamatory can decline to take the comment down or to have their details revealed. And then the complainant would have to go to court and the court can refuse to unmask them if they think that it would cause risk to that person. Oh, really? So if it's someone in a, you know, a domestic violence situation, yeah. um, there's, there's some protection in there for that. Yeah. Uh, although that is a legitimate concern that that doesn't go far enough, that protection. This is the benefit of Paul reading the exposure draft. It's sort of weird to me, though, that you could go to a company and say, oh, I'm asked the troll, and they say, okay, we'll just ask the troll, and the troll says, no, no, sorry. Yeah, it's... it's like, a, what, it, what, what are we talking about? We did a whole full story on it. Yeah. It's it's mm. weaker than it it's weaker yeah. than it looks. It's, yeah. it's really just improving the process of making the complaint mm. rather than guaranteeing an outcome. Mm. But it also benefits media companies who now don't have to, um, you know worry as much about being sued for defamation. Well, yeah, mate, explain that to people because obviously there's there's also the VOLA um, element associated with the anti-troll legislation. Maybe just run people through that quickly. So quickly, uh, media companies were found to be publishers of the comments that other social media users uh, made on their posts. This bill would fix that by just deeming that they're, they're not publishers, so they can't be sued mm -hmm. for that. Okay. And then on um, the second question from Ellie, so did forcing Facebook to pay for content help or hinder Paul? Well, some media companies, it's public how much they received from Facebook and Google. Uh, in some other cases, it's not public how much they got. Uh, we, as editorial rather than commercial staff at Guardian Australia, are none the wiser than the general public about how much our company uh, received from the digital giants. Correct. No idea. But you can, you can see uh, from just job ads at, you know, the ABC, the AFR, Guardian, you, you can see that there are expansions going on that I, you know, highly doubt would, would have been going on to the same extent or in some cases not at all uh, if it weren't for the money uh, from the social media giants. Yeah, and if you've missed this entirely, the, the sort of purpose sitting behind the news media bargaining code is... Uh, you know, the business models of, uh, you know, uh, media companies that are not publicly funded was going out backwards and has been for, you know, best part of a decade because of uh, the internet uh, has basically crueled our business models. And so the news media bargaining code in a policy sense was an, an attempt to get a fairer revenue sharing arrangement between uh, the platforms and mainstream media companies. But as Paul says, we are completely clueless about the benefits in our own company and uh, in many others as well. Okay, so there's just one that I'm going to throw out generally now from Phoebe Matic, uh, which is about media process. Always in these pods, we get a number of questions about media process. Like it's obvious you guys are very interested in 
um, you know, the professional decisions we make uh, or don't make, uh, how we're performing or not performing. Obviously, we'll always try and get to one of those questions uh, in in this in this pod. But um, the question from Phoebe is: How do you attempt to support important conversations if people, and by this I think she means politicians, are trying to bog things down in talking points? How do you refocus? So, I mean, I, I take it to mean Phoebe that you mean like when we're in a sort of talking points hell, how do we pull ourselves out and focus on the on the reality rather than and on the messaging, who's got a thought, Daniel? You look you look as though you're brimming oh, well, with thoughts on, I mean, on that one. I have some thoughts. I mean, it, we do our best to cover the stories we think are important uh, and of interest to our readers. But there's also uh, there's also you know big stories that are around. Sometimes governments make announcements, oppositions make announcements about their policies. You know, like there's a lot happening in any one day, and I think there's been a you know a bit uptick in how much is happening in any one day and and sort of decisions about what to cover and what not to cover. I mean, we do our best to get answers to questions. Um, sometimes that's at press conferences, but not always at press conferences. We're going to, you know, ministers' offices, trying to get responses, direct responses. Sometimes it takes a long time. Uh, sometimes they don't answer the question. Sometimes it takes a week to get an answer back and it just ignores the question and gives a generic comment. Um, sometimes there's a response with some background attached to it, which is not particularly useful, but the background is meant to be uh, not attributed. So these are all sort of things. My favourite is on background, no comment. Yes, they don't want to say, they don't want to explicitly (laughs) say we're not commenting, but they're not commenting, but you can say it's understood that they won't be commenting. It's ridiculous. Um, So like rest assured readers and listeners, we're trying to get answers to questions, Um, but there are a lot of cross currents as well. And, you know, a Prime Minister of the day, such as Scott Morrison's very, uh, you know, tries to control the press conference and, and sometimes refuses to take questions on other things. Uh, And then, you know, there are individual journalists at press conferences who, you know, might be covering an issue that day and, you know, they want to get a response to that issue that day that their editors asked them to chase. So, like, it's why sometimes when you see press conferences, I think, you know, in general, as a general principle, I think we can all do a better job of following up each other's questions. Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know individual journalists being asked to chase a particular issue. So yeah. you sort of see sometimes the, sometimes the press know. conferences go over yes. the shop. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think um, I think we're all pretty um, accustomed to seeing through the talking points. I think you know, that's a huge part of the job and we're, we're you know, without wanting to say we're, we're, we're cynical about what comes out of politicians' mouths. We're, we're very accustomed to hearing the talking points and trying to look beyond those. Uh, I think one thing that Guardian Australia does very well um, and, you know, Paul is uh, one of the, the best people to do this is we often do explainers or fact checks on policies or pieces of legislation or things that are said. Um, and I think that really helps to sort of rise above the he said, she said um, nature of politics and um, really sort of get to the, the bones of an issue. Mm, yeah. Paul? I think this uh, question might come from the perspective of, of someone who's watching the, the press conferences in its in- entirety. And it's it's worth remembering that the politicians' approach to the press conference, they're, they're not assuming that everyone is doing that. What they're most conscious of is getting the grab up that they want to get yeah. in the 6pm mm. news yep. and to not uh, not have a misstep and, and say something that they don't want to be in that package. So that's why there's the disjunct between what they're asked and what they answer. That's why the political advisors say, answer the question you wish you were asked, not the one um, that you were. I mean, th- the best we can do is to just keep asking uh, the question again, ask it in a different way, um, r- maybe write story shame 
shaming them for not having answered it, like refuse to, you know, refuse to answer on, on some important topic of the do. day, which we also do. And, you know, we're not obliged to reproduce screeds of them not answering the question. I mean, Amy, the way she runs the live blog, she won't include the Dixers and the answers to the Dixers in question time precisely for this reason, that it's like she's made a judgment that it's not that relevant to people unless it's making a particular point, you know, just to run the lines. Yeah, and it's uh, like we've covered quite a bit in that in response to your question, Phoebe. There's so, there are questions, and then it's uh, how do you um, step outside the matrix and put actual information in front of people and break it down in fact checks and explanatory uh, pieces, as, as Sarah rightly says, Paul is extremely good at those. Uh, so it's sort of like, yeah, I, I suppose um, what may not be obvious is that, uh, and particularly if you're watching these press conferences, you would see the, the droning of particular themes and points, you know, like in climate change, technology, not taxes, or, you know, what, whatever you, whatever the the talking point is that they sort of ram, rammed, ram over and over again. Um, but... Uh, as Sarah says, it's sort of like we're not even listening to that in terms of journalistically we're not even, we're not listening. I know you're subjected to it, but we're not listening. We're actually listening at another level for, um, you know, what is, what's, is there a new fact? Is there the a new, yeah. the subtext, well, basically. We are listening, but we're comparing it constantly to everything else that they've said. Yes. And, and we're, we're, we're discounting it because we know that they've said it previously. We're looking for the new line. Yes, exactly. Or a hint and, of what they're going to do next. Or a hint guess, of what you know, they're going to do You can't yeah. ignore what the government's going to do next. Like That's an important thing. It's the government of the day. What are they going to do next in a policy sense? So, you know, um, I know... You picked up Paul a month or two ago, anti-troll sort of stuff. Like that, you could see the positioning that they were preparing to do something, and then mm-hmm. it ends in legislation being proposed. So, like, we need to cover the things that the government's doing. But it can be frustrating. You talked about the fact checks and you know explaining things. Sometimes there seems to be less shame about saying mistruths or lies, and yeah. that even after a fact check and after it's been pointed out many times, it doesn't always influence the way you know the politicians might repeat those comments, you know, completely impervious to that corrective and sometimes uh, certain media outlets also continue to amplify something that's been demonstrably proven to be false. Yeah, which I think is probably slightly Phoebe's point. Um, but anyway, look, we can only can only reflect on our own practice and show our methods, which is why we address these questions in this pod um, and and that is certainly our approach. So I hope that's helpful, Phoebe, in, in, in terms of unpacking our practice and the way we think about it. Now, Cara's uh, given us one to end on. Thank you, Cara. She has asked us to nominate our political highlight and low light of 2021. We're all pretty tired, I think, in the pod cave today. So strangely, I think we might sort of automatically skew towards low lights, but we do have highlights. So let's share them. Daniel, where did you end up with your highlight and your low light? Um, well, I reframed the highlight slightly to clangor of the year. Oh, yes. I think that's um, always when, a highlight. You know, a few months ago, Scott Morrison. Uh, declaring in one breath that he was all for the freedom of, you know, stands for freedom and we support Taiwan uh, and inadvertently um, accidentally seemed to endorse uh, Xi Jinping's uh, (laughs) prescription for for what, uh, you know, integrated 
Taiwan would be one country, two systems, yeah. and then later denied that he'd actually made the mistake, even though it was demonstrably a, a clangor. Um, uh, so, I mean, that was slightly amusing, but it's just it, it was interesting to me that despite all the focus on the strategic challenges in the region, that that, that, that mistake could be made. Yes. Um, the low light has to be Afghanistan, what's unfolded there. Mm. Um, you know, it's very easy in hindsight, but honestly, we closed our embassy in May and, like, the gap between that and uh, what happened in August, you know, it's hard to it's hard to deny we could have done more to get people who assisted us out sooner. So that's a low light. Yeah, no, it's bloody awful. Yeah, Sarah. Uh, okay, well, for my low light, I had the um, Barnaby Joyce returns. Uh, uh, Nat spill. <laughs> what have you got against Barnaby um, Joyce? I, I, it wasn't so well. Yeah, you know, it was the spill, but it was it was more the aftermath, the just like the nakedly transactional, like handing out of ministerial goodies and the rewarding of backers and the punishment of critics. Yeah. I just found it so gross and so um, predictable and just just shameful, really. Um, There's been a lot of gross moments like that this year. Yeah. I don't know whether we are just tired and that's colouring our perceptions, but I, I feel like there's been more grossness around this year, yeah, just as a general comment. Anyway, it does. I'm messing with year. your vibe. Anyway. No, no, yep. not at all. Um so the highlight also has a bit of a low light. The highlight is um, absolutely how, despite the problems with the vaccination program early in the day, early in the year, um, you know, I think Australia's high vaccination rates are just extraordinary yeah. and mm. really warm the cockles of my heart and particularly given all the anguish and um, and heartache that people have been through with lockdowns and um, separation, separated families and so on. I just think it's marvellous that Australia has um, really taken that up um, with gusto and I guess that, you know, just parentheses low light is the Pacific is still looking really grim and you know have PNG where vaccination rates are 20% or something awful so there's a lot more to be done but um but that's a highlight nonetheless no no, no I, I, I agree I agree you know uh, it's um you know remarkable and great yes not the Pacific bit obviously that's bad and we need to sort it Paul what are your uh highlights and low lights huh? My highlight was the voter ID bill being dropped. So, um, you know, people will. You might not... need to explain that to Pe people well, in case they There was it. a proposal from the coalition to require people to show identification, like a driver's license or, uh, you know, bills or something like that, when they uh, went to, to vote. There, there were some safeguards in it that wouldn't have knocked people out from voting entirely, but I really do think it would have discouraged people. They wouldn't have gone home to get documents, you know, they wouldn't have come back. They, they wouldn't understand the alternative process. So I, I really think it would have invalidated a lot of valid votes and prevented a lot of valid voters from voting. Um, so and we're not really for voter suppression in and we're this not, we're office. Not, we're not really for voter suppression. Um, <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah, maybe delete good, the really. We're not, we're not massively we're into not voter all. suppression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, Paul. So, so that, that's the highlight. Yeah. Um, yep. And, you and the low, light? The low yep. light is the uh, government handling of Atagi's warning of blood clots on the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, not well, there's a few governments too, I think, to be fair. You know, like it was uh, – anyway, this is your low light. Go. 
Well, ATAGI gave advice that still left room for um, individual patient consent, um, and yet the way the warning was presented and the policy settings of the vaccine program where under-40s weren't eligible for any vaccine until the rules were changed in late June, um, those things combined to just mean that the government was effectively giving up on this vaccine candidate that was used hugely successfully in the UK and ended up being a huge part of our own program as well. Mm. When the Delta outbreak hit and, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, our two biggest cities, were in lockdown, the same people were taking AstraZeneca, um, you know, in their 20s, 30s and 40s in July, August and September that could have been taking it in April Mm. uh, if that decision had been handled better rather than 15 minutes after they got the advice, giving a press conference that was basically waving the white flag and giving up on AstraZeneca. So, you know, while it's great that the vaccine program has done incredibly well in the the third and fourth quarters of the year and we're reaching such high rates, um, we would have been in a lot better Mm. position if... Yeah. I think yeah. it like really struck home when you saw um, Sarah Gilbert, the Oxford um, professor, getting the standing ovation at Wimbledon. And, you know, this is for a vaccine that was so maligned in Australia. And I completely agree with Paul. The government's handling of that was just atrocious. But yeah. I think that really brought it home to me how differently it was viewed here to yeah. over there. And it did, yeah, as Paul says, it, it slowed the capacity of us to vaccinate the whole population. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good one to, it's a good one to resurface. Uh, for myself, um, well, a highlight, uh, apart from doing this podcast and uh, uh, with these people, <laughs> um, which is a, always a highlight, genuinely, I love these people to death. Um, my highlight were, I had a couple, actually. I had the return of uh, the Liberal moderates to the four, a species of politician previously thought to be extinct or at least endangered. Now, of course, you can argue they did that because their houses are burning at home in terms of competition with independence. But nonetheless, good to hear some uh, Liberal moderates starting to stand up. And also not so much as a highlight as a truly amazing moment that I won't forget. I won't forget quickly standing next to Emmanuel Macron at the G20 when he called Scott Morrison a liar. That was, uh, you don't see that every day of the week. And I was privileged to witness that. In terms of the low light, It's got to be Scott Morrison uh, having the Mia Culpa press conference several weeks after Brittany Higgins levelled her allegation where he was trying to tell Australian women, yes, I've listened, yes, I understand your pain, yes, I've learned heaps, and literally a third of the way through the press conference he uh, delivered a coded beatdown to the reporter who had broken the story, uh, Samantha Maiden. I still honestly can't believe that happened. I can't believe he actually did that, Uh, but he did. And uh, I think I'll have to go quite a way down the road to find a lower low light than that. But anyway, we should end on an upbeat note. Merry Christmas, etc., to all uh, listeners, readers, etc. I think I might have one more podcast in me next week. <laughs> I think one, but we're getting definitely to the finish line here. I That's want just to be a selection of lowlights. <laughs> right. yeah. Could be the selection of lowlights. God help us all. Uh, and the political year obviously is not over. Before we came in to record this session, I accredited us for the mid-year economic forecast, which is next week, and there's very 
various other things still coming at us, believe it or not. Um, uh, but yeah, look, it's been a huge year. We uh, appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening to the show and sharing it and participating it as enthusiastically as you do. Thank you to Melanie Tate, who's the EP of the show, while Miles Martin Yoni is off on a bit of parental leave. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who often cuts it. I believe I'll be back next week. See you then. I don't think I know. (laughs) (laughs) Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.